Hi, welcome to Living Water Bible Fellowship's audio sermons. It's our prayer and hope that you'll be encouraged and uplifted by the preaching of God's Word. Stick around after the message to hear more about how to contact us. We are going to be in 1 Peter this morning, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. If you've got a Bible, I encourage you to meet me there. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. Something that my small group has been doing uh, during our meetings is that we have been reading through entire books of the Bible in one sitting. Uh, Now that may sound pretty ambitious, but we really have kept ourselves to the New Testament letters. Uh, We've dipped ourselves a few times in some of the shorter Old Testament books. But yeah, we've been reading through entire books of the Bible in one sitting. And as we've done that for several weeks now, uh, it's always struck me every time we finish a book just how reading the whole in one sitting sheds so much light on some of the smaller passages. Reading the whole sheds light and and gives light and flavor to each of the smaller passages. And I would encourage you you to do that as well. Some of the shorter books in our Bible, read them in one sitting. You know, a lot of those only take, you know, 10, 15 minutes, and I think you'll find it to be pretty edifying because the author, they bring up certain things and they repeat those certain phrases, they repeat those certain ideas several times throughout the letter, really just driving it home and emphasizing those certain key points. So I encourage you to do that. Because sometimes when we focus on the little portions of Scripture, we lose sight of the whole. We forget that there's an overarching theme here going on, an overarching message to the entire book. Sometimes we forget that, and sometimes we even forget that when we're preaching. Uh, The type of preaching that we do here is called exegetical preaching, where we go verse by verse. And sometimes it's almost like we just forget about the previous week's sermon, and it doesn't build, and this week's sermon doesn't build on last week's sermon, and it just seems different sermons from almost different books. But these books, they have an underlying theme to them. They have an underlying message that really binds them together. So although we're only three weeks in to the book of 1 Peter and we're still in chapter 1, I wanted to revisit some of the overarching themes in Peter because I think it will give light to all the passages that we're going to come across in this sermon series. So the overarching idea, the overarching message in the book of Peter is the theme of exile. That's really what Peter is drawing from. That's his big kind of motivation is the theme of exile. He says that in the opening lines to those who are elect exiles. And he brings up the term several times throughout the letter. And what is an exile? An exile is a person who is barred from their own native country. They're not allowed to enter their own native country, whether for political reasons, whether for war, whether for famine, for punitive reasons, whatever the reason is, an exile is a person who is not allowed to enter their own home country. And when Peter brings up the idea of exile, we need to have in our minds the Old Testament because that's what Peter is drawing from. This term exile comes directly from the Old Testament and specifically the Jewish exile to Babylon. And we don't have to guess what Peter's doing. We don't have to speculate. Peter pretty much tells us that he's connecting his current day experiences with 
the Babylonian exile several hundred years before him. At the end of the letter, in chapter 5, verse 13, Peter says, She who is at Babylon, and who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does my son, Mark. You see, Peter is not actually writing to a female person in Babylon. He's writing to the church in Rome. But Peter is connecting Babylon to Rome. He's saying, just like God's people were in exile back then, so God's people are in exile today. Peter connects Babylon to Rome to his current time. And that's why we as Christians, we can, we can resonate with this letter. Although we may not be Jewish, we can resonate with the fact that we too are in exile. Now let's just think for a moment about earthly exiles. There have been many people, thousands upon thousands of people throughout time and history who have been exiled, who have been barred from their own home country, unable to return. Let's just think about that for a moment. Let's say you grew up here in Alamosa. You grew up here in the valley. You're familiar with everything. You know all the back roads. You know the history of small businesses on Main Street. You know these people. And let's say for a moment you are exiled. You are kicked out of this region to a different country maybe, to a different region in the U.S. That's what an exile is. You're not allowed to come back home. Everything that was familiar to you is now unfamiliar. You may find yourself in a different land, different nation, different language, different culture. Everything's new. And if that was you, if you were in exile, what do you have to look forward to? You may or you may not go back home. Like I said, you're in a completely unfamiliar territory. And if by chance you do get to go back home, would it really feel like home? Let's say there was war. And everything you thought you knew, everything that was familiar to you, is now destroyed by the destruction of war. If you really came home, would it feel like home? That is, that is basically the experience of the Jewish people in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. These Jewish exiles got to come back home, come back to the homeland from Babylon. And they come back to find the temple is destroyed, the land is ravished, and they have enemies on every side looking for their destruction. What do earthly exiles have to look forward to? Political exiles, what do they have hope in? It could be a devastating thing to be exiled from your own home country. But that's the image the Apostle Peter is using to communicate and to teach the churches. But let's contrast these earthly exiles with Christian exiles, according to Peter. You see, as Christian exiles, unlike earthly exiles, we have a solid hope. We have a solid hope in the fact that we do look forward to coming home, and we will be home someday. And upon our homecoming, when we get to glory, when we get to the other side, we will be met with an inheritance. That's what the Apostle Peter says, he, that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. We have something to look forward to. Something will be given to us once our exile is over. And imagine coming home from an earthly exile, coming back to the valley after years and years of being away and being met with more than what you left with. That's what we have as Christians. We are going to receive far more than we have right now. Spiritual blessings, material blessings in heaven. We will have far more than we do have right now. 
And we also know that there is an end to our exile. There is an end to our exile, and it is the second coming of Christ. Peter says this several times, that our faith in verse 7 may, 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 result to be, may found to result in glory, honor, and praise at the revelation of Jesus Christ, the, the revealing of Christ. He also says that we are called to set our hope fully. There's that word again, hope. Set our hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is an end to our exile, unlike some earthly exiles who always live in exile, who continually live away from their home country. So under this big umbrella, under this big theme of exile, Peter is essentially kind of oscillating back and forth between two big ideas. Peter, it's not really a clear-cut distinction within the letter, but he kind of sprinkles these ideas throughout. And essentially the two ideas that he oscillates to, he's teaching the church of this great hope that we have in Christ based upon what God has done. We have this great hope found in Christ. And he really says that at the beginning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have hope based upon what God has done. That's one big idea. And the second big idea is what Peter's going to call us to do, our marching orders, our duties. Because God has blessed us, because God has done certain things for us, we have certain things to do in response. So he kind of oscillates between reminding us of the great things that God has done and commanding us certain things to do. And I want you to keep that in mind for the remainder of this sermon. But as we continue to preach through, remember that, that, that Peter is laying down big things that God has done for us. And he's also commanding us to do certain duties and act in a certain way. And essentially, to kind of get technical on this, this is what, um, you know, preachers and teachers of the word call the indicatives and the imperatives. They're all throughout scripture. The indicative is something that is true. The indicative is something that is a fact, something that is the reality of the thing. It's the true statement of what God has done. And the imperative is what God now commands us to do in light of the indicative. And generally, that's how the commands go in the New Testament. They flow from the indicative to the imperative. There's always a reason for the commands. There's always a motivation for the commands based upon what God has done. And the classic example of that is the Great Commission. What is the Great Commission? Go make disciples of all nations, right? That's only half the story. That's the imperative. But the indicative, the statement of fact, the truth, comes before where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. You see, there's the statement of fact. There's the truth, what God has done. And he moves from there to the marching orders. And that's essentially what Peter teaches us. Here's what God has done. He has blessed us. He has given us an inheritance. Therefore, do these certain duties. The indicatives to the imperatives all throughout the letter. Maybe another way to, another angle as to what Peter is trying to get at in his letter. We could sum up this letter in verse 17. I think that verse 17 of chapter 1 gives us the summary of what Peter's thought is. Why he wrote this letter. And it's found in the, 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 the latter part of verse 17. Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Why did Peter write this? 
But he wrote this to teach believers how to conduct themselves while they are in exile. Teach them how to live in exile. Teach them how to flourish in exile. How should we then live if we are these exiles that Peter is talking about? When we think of exile, when we think about how should we live, we, should, we ought to once again go to the Old Testament to see how those believers lived during their exile. So let's briefly go to the book of Jeremiah to kind of frame how we should be living just like the exiles in the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 29. 29 beginning in verse 4. And this is a letter from Jeremiah to the exiles who are in Babylon. Verse 4 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters into marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So Jeremiah is teaching these exiles who have been excised from their home, removed from their home, he teaches them certain things to do. He tells them to get busy. He tells them that they need to be active. They're not allowed to just sit around and mope. They're not just allowed to be, sit around and be doom and gloom. But they're called to be active. There are certain things that God wants these exiles to do. To build houses, to live in them, to plant gardens, to build families, and to seek the welfare of the city. But in verse 10, he also reminds them of something. But they need to know something, what God is going to do. Verse 10, For thus says the Lord, when the seven years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So while, yes, these exiles are supposed to be doing something, they're supposed to be active, they're also called to remember something. They're also called to think about something and believe something that God will do for them. He will fulfill his promise and end their exile. And it's similar for us. Peter is essentially teaching there's things for us to know about God. There's things for us to remember about who God is and what he has done for us to keep that in mind. But there's also things we need to be doing. There's also duties we need to perform. There's also marching orders that we need to be obedient to. And that, uh, those overarching pictures really are, are gonna, is going to help us in our passage here today, but also future passage, passages. Exile, seeking the welfare of the city, being active, remembering what God has done for us. So let's, let's read in verse 22 of chapter 1, 1 Peter, beginning in verse 22. He says, Having purified your souls... By your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The, gla the grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So Peter here in these short verses 
um, repeats several ideas and several words that he's already laid down for us in this letter. And what I want to do is focus in on these words and just show how they're all connected. These words, as I said, Peter brings them up several times and what he emphasizes, we also need to emphasize. So the first word, not chronologically, but the first word I want to talk about is the word obedience. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. In chapter 1, verse 2, it says that we are elect exiles, that we are saved according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. We were saved to obey. In verse 14 of chapter 1, it says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. As obedient children, we are saved to obey Christ. We are saved to obey the Father. And later on in the letter, in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. In other words, be obedient to every human institution for the Lord's sake. Obedience is a key thing, a key idea that Peter wants to communicate to the churches. Now he says here in our passage, obedience to the truth. And the truth here is probably verses 13 through 21, the preceding paragraph. So what are the commands that we are called to obey? What is the obedience? Where is the obedience we need to fulfill in the preceding verses? In verse 13, therefore prepare, preparing your minds for action. Our minds need to be ready. We need to gird up the loins of our mind. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Those are some of the things that Peter has in mind. As you obey the truth, so you are purified. As we prepare our minds for action, as we set our hope fully on the grace of God, as we aren't conformed to our passions of our former ignorance and our former way of living, and as we are holy, that is how we are purified. That's the truth to which Peter calls us to be obedient to the truth, to be holy, a distinct people, to prepare our minds for action. See, obedience is a test of our discipleship. See, discipleship is not just the things you believe. It's not just the doctrines that you've memorized. Discipleship is obedience. It's doing what Christ commands us. We are called children of whom you obey, children of the Father as obedient children. Jesus tells us in John 14, 15 that if you're going to be my disciples, do what I command. Do what I say. You see, a life of obedience, a life taking obedience seriously is not legalism. Just because a church, just because a person takes obedience seriously for themselves, but also for others, that is not legalism. As the text says here, we are called to be holy. When I'm strict on myself to be holy, and I place certain things in my life to encourage holiness, that's not legalism. When I expect other brothers and sisters to be holy, and I say, hey, the word says you need to be holy, so be holy, that's not legalism. That's just obedience. Legalism is when we try to bind people's consciences where God has not spoken. Or we say, here's what you have to do based upon what I say. That's what the Pharisees did. They added to the word of God and then they bound people's consciences to it. That's what legalism is, adding to the word 
But taking obedience seriously is not legalism. In fact, it's what we've been called to, obedience to Jesus Christ and as obedient children. And as Peter says, when we obey, we are purified, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. We, are, we become pure when we obey. And according to Peter, there's a, there are three ways by which we are purified in God's sight. Three ways by which God purifies us. The first one is found in the introduction when it says we've been saved for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Sprinkling with his blood. That's a very important Old Testament concept that calls to mind the ceremonial worship of the Old Covenant. When a person was unclean, they had to be sprinkled with blood to then become clean and pure in God's sight. And then he would accept their worship. So we are made pure by the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. And to flesh this out a little more, if you turn back just a couple books to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9 gives us this idea of purification by the blood. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13. It says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons, uh, defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, so there we have sprinkling, we have blood, we have purification. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So we are purified by this sprinkling of the, of the blood of Christ. We are made clean ceremonially. We can enter into his presence with a clean conscience because Christ covers our sin. The second way God purifies us is through fiery trials. We see this in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. It says that the church has been grieved by various trials, but these trials are, have a purpose so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter likens trials to fire. He also does this in chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. And the image there is of a hunk of metal, a hunk of gold that just come out of the mountainside, placed into the oven, placed into the furnace. And as that hunk of metal heats up, and as that hunk of metal continues to increase its temperature, the impurities are brought to the surface. That which is impure is brought to the surface, and those impurities are then removed. The dross is taken away, and when that, that, that blacksmith pulls out that gold, it is now purified. All the impurities are gone. It is a pure piece of metal. So God uses trials in our life to purify us, to get out the impurities in our faith, to confront our idolatry, to confront our comfort. God uses these trials to purify our faith. And the third way comes in our passage through obedience. We are purified through our obedience. The more we obey, the more we are purified. The more we are diligent to do what Christ and his apostles command us, the more we are sanctified and weaned from the world. And when I think of obedience, specifically to obedience to holiness and this idea of purification, I think of the prophet Isaiah. 
If you remember the prophet Isaiah, he's a believer, a prophet of God, probably one of the most righteous men in Israel. But he's confronted with the holiness of God. He gets this vision of the holiness of God in the temple, and he says he's a man of unclean lips. He's impure. But God, by his mercy and grace, does not leave the prophet Isaiah there. But he takes that hot coal from the altar, and he touches his lips, the place of his uncleanness. And God says to him that his guilt is taken away, and his sin is atoned for. He is purified, and he is clean. We are purified in our faith by our obedience to the truth. Another phrase I want to direct your attention to is the phrase born again. In verse 23, since you have been born again. This is the second time Peter has brought this word up. He says it firstly in verse 3 of chapter 1. The new birth, born from above, born again. And this is the big indicative that I was talking about earlier. This is the true thing. This is the truth. This is the fact This is the reality of the believers and the churches in this dispersion, these elect exiles. He says, since you have been born again. That's true. That's the reality. That's the statement of fact. That's what God has done for the believers. And this gets at the doctrine of regeneration. The doctrine of regeneration is a very powerful doctrine to think about and to remember what God has done for us. It's powerful, but it's also pervasive. The theme of the new birth, every major character either preaches on it or writes about it. Jesus, Peter, Paul, John, and James all allude to and speak explicitly about the new birth. Jesus says in John 3.3, talking to Nicodemus, you must be born again to see the kingdom. Just to see it, you have to be born again, let alone enter it. You must Be born again, born from above. Paul says in Ephesians that although we are dead in sin, Ephesians 2, 4, that God has made us alive together with Christ. In Titus 3, 5, it says that God saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. John tells us in 1 John 5, 1, that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God And James tells us in chapter 1, verse 18, that God brought us forth by the word of truth. God gave birth to us by the word of truth. And James and Peter are really speaking the same language because they both connect the new birth to the word of God. James says that he brought us forth by the word of truth. And Peter says that we've been born again through the living and abiding word of God. There's a connection there. We have been born again to a living hope, in verse 3, and we have been born again by the living word. Christians are alive to God, dead to sin, and alive to God. See, the process by which a person becomes born again, as I said, is exposure to the word of God. We cannot rationally uh, reason people to be born again. We cannot convince them to do certain things to be born again. To be born again is a gift from above, and it happens by the word. It happens from the seed of evangelism, where someone shares the gospel, proclaims the gospel, and someone is born again. That might be your testimony. Someone shared the gospel with you one time, and you believed, and you had that new birth experience. But I've known of some people who 
start out reading the Bible as unbelievers, read through the entire scripture, and come out the other side believing in Jesus. And it was the word which was the vehicle to produce this new birth. The word was the mechanism by which God had them to be born again. It's because the word is living and the word is powerful and the word is abiding. The new birth comes by the word of God. And when we think about this doctrine of regeneration, it tells us much about the nature of the gospel. It tells us much about God's activity in our lives when it comes to salvation. And it teaches us that God is the primary agent in salvation. As verse 3 says, God caused us to be born again. He caused us to be born again. James, as I said, says that he brought us forth. Ephesians 2 said that God made us alive. God is the primary actor, the primary agent in our salvation, especially in the new birth. Let's just think about that, that metaphor of the new birth. Let's think about that image. It is the child in womb who's being acted upon in the birthing process. It is a child being acted upon in the birthing process in the same way as we are born again, God is the one doing the activity. Sometimes the the doctrine of regeneration is called the, the effectual calling, how God calls us from death into life. But what happens when a person is born again? What are some of the evidences of the new birth? What are some of the effects? How can you tell if you're born again? How can you tell if those around you are born again? Well, broadly speaking, when a person becomes born again, there is an enlightening of the mind. The light bulb clicks. The, the, the mind becomes enlightened when the spirit causes us to be born again. The scripture talk about, talks about spiritual knowledge and spiritual wisdom. Another way to think about enlightening of the mind, how do you tell if someone is born again? Well, to that person, the gospel makes sense. The gospel makes sense to that person. And what is the gospel? What is just the facts of the gospel? The facts of the gospel is that a Jewish man named Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and this Jewish man was a carpenter, and he professed to be the Son of God and the long-awaited Messiah. And he was born in the Roman Empire in Judea, and he was hung on a Roman cross, and he died because he was giving the, the Roman and Jewish authorities grief. And supposedly he died for the sins of people. And supposedly three days later he rose again from the grave. And if you trust in him, your sins will be forgiven. All your wrongs do, wrongdoings will be made right. Do you know how crazy that is? Do you know how crazy that, that is? That a Jewish man 2,000 years ago would die for the sins of people? Not only that he would claim to be the son of God and the Messiah. See, that doesn't make sense to a lot of people. But to those who are born again, you say, yes, that's the truth. That makes sense. It couldn't be any other way. When you are born again, the gospel makes sense. Do you know how many people don't understand the gospel? It doesn't make sense to them logically. It doesn't make sense to them at all. But an evidence of the new birth is, is the fact that we believe the gospel and that it makes sense. When we, when we become born again... Our heart of stone is removed and a heart of flesh is put in, put in its place. We have new desires 
and new affections. When someone is born again, there's a renewal of the will to where you did not want to serve God, but now you want to serve God. And when someone is born again, the Spirit draws that person to Christ. That's broadly speaking. That's how we can tell someone is born again. But specifically, according to Peter, how do we tell someone is born again? Well, they have a living hope. We are born again to a living hope in verse 3. We're also born again to love the brothers. We are born again to love. You've You've purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Since you have been born again, love the brothers from a pure heart. How do you tell if you're born again? Well, you love other Christians. You long to be with other Christians. And that's what gets us to our next phrase here, brotherly love. Peter is commissioning us to love the brothers. And it's a big deal to Peter. It's a big deal to him. He says that we are called to love sincerely. We are called to love earnestly. And we are called to love from a pure heart. To love from a pure heart. We are not called to treat each other like chapter 2 verse 1 says. He says, put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy and slander. We are called to love from a pure heart. Well, it's at this point in the sermon we're going to do some trivia and some audience participation. And if you know the answer to this question, I want you to raise your hand and I'll call on you. But what major American city is known as the city of brotherly love? Does anybody know? Peter? Why is it? He said Philadelphia, for those of you who couldn't hear. And that's true. Philadelphia is known as the city of brotherly love. And Peter, do you know why that is? I assume because the name is based on the Greek word phileo, which is the word for that type of love. Yep, correct. He was here at first service. Yeah, he was here at first service. <laughs> he cheated. I should have called on somebody else. <laughs> that's exactly right. Within the word Philadelphia... We have two Greek words, phileo, which is love, and delphoi, which is the brethren. A love for the brethren, a love for, the, for God's people. We ought to have Philadelphia within the church, a love for the brothers. Peter says this again in chapter 3, verse 8. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love. In chapter 4, verse 8, he says again, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So brotherly love is a big deal to Peter. And when we think about this idea of brotherly love, once again, we've got to set it in the context of exile. We've got to set it in the context of the fact that Christians are exiles and sojourners on the earth. I mean, let's think about all the different peoples, people groups, ethnicities who have been exiled to this country or have immigrated to this country. When they arrive on the shores of the United States, they go to New York, they get through the processing. Generally speaking, they go to find their people. If you're an Italian and you come to New York, where do you go? You go to that section of the city where the Italians are. If you're an Irishman, you go to the section of the city where the Irish people are. Cubans, Haitians, Polish, it doesn't matter. Different exiles and different immigrants, they seek out their people. And we know this here in the valley too. Where are all the Dutch people in the valley? 
They're out in Waverly. They all congregated out there. They all settled out there. That's where their people were. So earthly exiles, when they're exiled to a new place, they have to find their people. Because when you find your people, there's a shared history, there's shared values, shared assumptions, shared cultural practices. You had to find your people. So if the church is in exile, where is your people? Well, the local church, these local churches in Pontus and Galatia and Asia and Bithynia, the local church is the neighborhood for God's people. The local church is the place where God's people go to find their people. That's where they go to find that shared history, those shared assumptions, those shared ways of life. That's where the exiles go. They go to the church to find their people because the church is made up of fellow exiles. We are all in exile together. This is not our home country. But when we come and congregate, we are reminded of that heavenly country to which we belong. You see, the apostle calls us to brotherly love. We are family members with each other. To love the brethren. We are called to love each other as family. You know, love implies things like knowledge. To love someone, you need to know them. Love implies proximity and closeness. It implies care and meeting tangible needs. And love implies effort. So brothers and sisters, who do you love of God's people? Do you love God's people? Do you want to be around other believers? Do you desire to be around other believers? Not exclusively, but do you love God's people? And this is a decent-sized church. And I'm not saying that we need, to, we need to love everybody equally or with the same degree, or we need to know everybody equally to the same degree. It's just impossible. The human mind is not capable to, to be able to do that. But there should be certain people within this congregation that you love as brothers and sisters. There should be people in this congregation who you know their story. You know their struggles. You know what they love. You know what they don't like. You know how to care for them. There should be people within this church that you love. If we are exiles together, we are called to love each other as brothers and sisters. You see, Peter's not calling us to have just a general disposition of niceness and civility and kindness towards other believers, but to know them and to love them. And this love is an eternal love. Because we will be spending eternity with one another. Our love for Christ has given us the gift of eternal life and it has bound us to other believers. We will be spending eternity with each other. So this love, this brotherly love is an eternal love. So we might as well start now. Because we're going to be spending a long, long time together. So it's a new year and there's new opportunities before us church. We are called to love the brethren. We're also called to remember that we have been born again. That we have been born again. God has made us born again. And we could almost read these verses backwards. Since you have been born again, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So let me just give you some tangible ways you can love the brothers. 
I, I would encourage us all to grow in this in the, in, the, in the coming year, to grow in our love for fellow believers. If you're the type of person to kind of bolt out of here after service, I encourage you to stick around. Meet a new person. Meet a new family. Get to know them. You know, invite them back to church. Every time you see them, get to know them here at church and continue that relationship outside the walls of the church. I encourage you to join and commit to a small group. We have our board out here with many small groups, and that's really one of the best places you can be to love people in particular, to join a small group. And even start a small group. Start meeting with other families around the Word, fellowshipping with one another. Be a pl- find a place in this church where you can know others and you can be known by others. And the Apostle Paul also gives us some pretty tangible advice, pretty tangible uh, things that we can focus on. In Romans chapter 12, verse 9, he says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, and outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal, be, servant, be fervent in the Spirit, and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayers, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Let love be genuine, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Tangible ways we can love other believers. So I think in years to come, brothers and sisters, the church is going to continue to stand out from the culture. And we need each other. And we need to be bound to each other in brotherly love. So may we be obedient to this call. May we remember what God has done for us and making us born again. And let us love God's people sincerely and earnestly. If you'd please rise this morning. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. The gospel according to the Bible is that Jesus Christ who was and is the eternal God, took on human flesh, was born of a virgin, died for our sins on the cross, and rose from the dead three days later. He then ascended to the Father's right hand, where he sits making intercession for his people, and right now he is establishing the kingdom of God on earth. You can enter into a saving relationship with God by repenting of your sins and placing your full trust in Jesus' life his death and resurrection on your behalf. In Christ, you will find forgiveness, acceptance, freedom, peace, hope, and a future. If you would like more information about Christianity or Living Water Bible Fellowship, visit our website at livingwateralamosa.org. God bless.